0: This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Professor Michael Tarrant. He's the founder and principal consultant specialising in integrative dermatology at the Psoriasis Eczema Clinic in Melbourne, Australia. Professor Tarrant is a full professor of the dermatology and venereology at the University of Rome, G. Marconi, in Rome, Italy. His special interests are the pathogenesis and integrated treatment approach for psoriasis, eczema, vitiligo and other autoimmune disorders. Welcome to FX Medicine, Michael. How are you going?
1: Yes, good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm
0: well, thanks. I understand you're a little bit jet-lagged. You've just flown in from overseas?
1: Yes, I've just attended a conference in uh, Vietnam and in uh, Malaysia and just flown in yesterday morning. Uh, The voice is a bit croaky, so (laughs) bear with me, please.
0: (laughs) Now, you've already done one talk with the ATMS, um, a webinar. You're going to be doing another webinar in June, correct? On the, is it the 18th of June?
1: That is correct, yes. We did one yesterday uh, and we will be doing another one on the 18th of June.
0: And what topic is that going to be covering?
1: Uh, the one yesterday was on uh, superantigens and uh, the way superantigens act in dermatological conditions. Uh, in our treatment approach and uh, the innovative approach of how to now treat a lot of these very severe dermatological conditions where bacterial, viral or microbial infections are involved, especially uh, in psoriasis. Uh, The treatment in June will deal primarily with psoriasis.
0: Well, that's what we're talking about today. So I guess let's start off right at the beginning, a little bit about you, because you've been in dermatology research for over 30 years, right?
1: Yes. um, My research in dermatology actually started in the early 80s. Uh, A friend of mine had a severe uh, dermatological condition, and uh, the condition was uh, had a waxing and weeding pattern, obviously went to see GP, got improvement. But um, one week, two weeks later, it was back to square one. So that's when I started thinking, surely there must be something else involved. We must be uh, missing uh, the causative factors or the the main issues driving the condition. And that's what got me started.
0: I mean, this seems to be, it's almost like the perfect drug, isn't it? The perfect drug is something that never heals the condition, but treats the symptoms of the condition, the expression of the disease very well. Hence, the need for the medication continues. <laughs> it's not...
1: Right. And it's, uh, it's been going on in the, the majority of uh, diseases that we treat. Uh, I mean, uh, patients want quick results, so they want that quick drug. But then when you tell them the reason why they got their condition and that the approach that they should take to get a, a better long-term solution, most of them would like to do it, but they have it reluctant because they, they want a quick result. Yeah. So all basis of integrative dermatology is to teach the patients how to look at their condition long-term and to manage their condition long-term. Yes, we, we start them, giving them topicals to relieve their symptoms, uh, give them a treatment uh, approach and, and management program where they could look at triggers that are exacerbating their condition. And if they adhere to that, the majority of patients get excellent results.
0: It's the age old job, if you like, isn't it? The, the uphill battle is the continued motivation of patients, even when they've seen the results. Of
1: course, it, it's a continuing thing, you know, like you've got to continue to explain to them. They, they're very good when they, their condition's doing well, and then as uh, soon as it rebounds, they come over and they're very sheepish about the whole thing. It's, only, it's time for my confession. They got to they got, they got confess and then they got to absorb them of their sin and start again.
0: So let's talk a little bit about psoriasis. We think we know about it, but what is psoriasis and just how prevalent is this condition in Australia? And, you know, you went over to Vietnam. Do you see different prevalences in varying areas?
1: Yeah, certainly in different parts of the world it's different. Uh, well, psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory skin disease. Um, it's characterised by... Uh, different presentations. Plaque is the most common psoriasis. You can get papules on the skin, red papules or macules. Can be extremely pruritic, um, and can lead to other comorbidities in, in psoriasis, where you get nail psoriasis, and also you could get psoriatic arthritis, which can be very uh, severe and debilitating mm-hmm. for the patient.
0: And what are the clinical features of psoriasis? You mentioned plaque and the macular papules. What's happening with the pathophysiology here um, in the different uh, you're, you're presentations?
1: you're getting keratinocyte a, a buildup a lot faster with psoriasis than with normal skin. The turnover is about 20 times faster. Hence, you've got this excessive skin buildup and flakiness all over the place. So, that's what causes this. Uh, different types of presentation. You can get this paracherototic presentation, hyperkerototic presentation, disckerototic presentation. These are all different presentations that you get. And interestingly, treatment varies according to the presentation you see. Uh, I often look at uh, when people talk about I uh, have a treatment for psoriasis. Yes, well, what type of psoriasis are you talking about? Right. Uh, because there are different presentations for psoriasis. We treat the presentations, not the name. If you understand where
0: I'm coming, so what's the basic runaway issue here? I mean, you know, proliferative issues. You're, you're thinking more like you know the cancers, the endometriosis, that sort of ah, uh, you know, hyperplasias. Mm-hmm. Is there a you know, is it a loss of apoptotic mechanisms, a loss of autophagy or autophagy? Is what are the drivers here? Uh,
1: it's an autoimmune condition, so it's a self recognition of self. So. Uh, the body is basically attacking itself and destroying itself. So that's basically what's going on with psoriasis and a lot of other autoimmune conditions. So that's what's going on in the the overall etiology and pathophysiology of this condition. Um, And uh, it can become very, very severe, and like I mentioned, especially when it gets into the joints. Um, And with all of this, you're getting more and more buildup of skin. So you're going from a phase of a macular presentation where it's very flat, then it becomes papular, then it can become paracheratotic where it's getting thicker and thicker and it becomes hyperkeratotic where uh, actually it's so thick on the skin. It's like uh, you know, crocodile skin in some, in some uh, presentations that we see. So there's this constant transformation depending on if it's treated or not treated and how, severely, how severe the condition is.
0: So the, the, the presentation that we see, that we're treating in an orthodox manner, um, is really the dysfunctional remodeling of an inflammatory process that goes on, much like what happens with, you know, say osteoarthritic joints or, or rheumatoid arthritic joints where you get a remodeling. Is that what's happening?
1: Yes, yeah, co- correct. There are a lot, Andrew. Uh, there are a lot of inflammatory markers and mediators that we're talking about here. Uh, psoriasis is not a, a simple condition. It is a very, very complex disease where you have a lot of uh, triggers, provoking factors, if you want to call that. Uh, there are a lot of comorbidities involved. And there were a lot of inflammatory markers and mediators into looking one, into looking two, into looking six, into looking eight, into looking 12, into looking 11, 23, etc. Yep. And uh across these factors playing its role. So you've got all these things converging and uh, uh, affecting basically the flare-up and uh, the flexiveness of the skin. So, so when people talk about getting a, a solution for psoriasis long-term, and finding a a, a molecule that would actually clear up psoriasis. There are many molecules already on the market, but because the the etiology and the pathophysiology is so, so complex, it's very difficult to have one treatment that will ever fix up psoriasis. It's impossible, actually, because you're covering one or two pathways but there are another 25 pathways that need to be looked at. It's genetic. So overall, we've got this genetic predisposition. And so far, we've identified 13 genes that are involved. And we don't even think that's in, that's all of it. Yeah. So you've got 13 genes that's got a dysregulation going on. You've got all these mediators working together how are you going to get a solution with one topical or one systemic drug to fix it? That's why there are many systemic drugs, and they all play a role. They all help, but it doesn't fix it. Yeah. Now we're moving to the new age of molecules. Now we're looking at biologics. Back in um, 1995 to 2000, uh, biologics were going to be the fix-all. It was called the new dawn of psoriasis treatment. And we move on 20 years later, we're back to square one oh, really? because uh, we do have these molecules that have come on the market. Having said that, they do provide some benefits, but uh, you can't fix it. You know, like the government's just recently uh, um, uh, advised that uh, they would be covering one of the biologics for very, very to psoriasis. And it's a good thing. You would give some benefit to some of the patients, but not all. And you can't fix it long term. Unless you start looking at some of the causative factors that are driving the condition. So,
0: I guess, how many types of psoriasis are there? We know that they, you know, you've just said they require a different approach. So, how many different approaches do we have to think Uh, of?
1: uh, Well, there are many types. I'll go through them. You've got plaque psoriasis, which is chronic plaque, which is the most common form. Then you have gutted psoriasis, which is a type of psoriasis that flares up following a bacterial, viral, or microbial infection. And it's very rampant, that type of psoriasis. From one day you may not have any psoriasis to the next day you're absolutely covered. Right. Because uh, the T-cell activation is so, so large. Then you've got flexural psoriasis, which is um, inflexions where skin touches skin. That's another form of psoriasis. Then you've got uh, annularis, psoriasis annularis. It presents on the skin like a round circle. Then you've got pustular, a weepy type of psoriasis. Then you've got plantar psoriasis, which affects both the palms and the feet. The, the then you've got exfoliative erythrodermic psoriasis, which uh, is like a, a red man syndrome where the whole body is red raw. Then we have scalp psoriasis. Then we've got nail psoriasis. Then we've got psoriatic arthritis. So there are different variants of psoriasis. For example, you mentioned when we talk about treatment. If you have plaque psoriasis, which is dry and flaky, Obviously, you're not going to treat it the same as psoriasis, which is weeping. It's not possible. You cannot get a good result with a, a topical where you're treating, like they use uh, a lot of different topicals on the market for the same condition. And no wonder it doesn't work because one is very dry and flaky and the other one is weeping. So, how can you treat the same condition, yeah. those two, with the same topical? Yeah, it's not possible.
0: When you get something like a diffuse plaque type versus the annular type, the, the circles, I'm trying to understand why the immune system of the body would make it a discrete presentation.
1: It's the nature of the beast. You know, we don't know that. We don't know why all of a sudden you've got all these round little patches uh, that are almost perfect on the body. They're so Spherical and round, it's, it's unbelievable when you look at them. And then you have uh, proxoracis, which is uh, uh, like a variable, you know, it has many different uh, presentations on the skin. So we ask the same question. Like if you look at pustular psoriasis, it's like a lick of pustules on the skin. And those pustules, before they erupt, they are almost identical. And you think, how did they become like this? Mm. What's driving it to become like this? All we know is that it's wearing because of all these mediating markers that are going on, but the exact presentation, the exact look of it is difficult. What I can tell you, though, is most times it's bilateral. So what happens on the left side of the body happens on the right. So we know because of this genetic uh, driving force behind it, if you understand what I'm saying. It's definitely a genetic condition, so that's why it's bilateral. There is a genetic predisposition there, so that's why it, 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 you have this bilateral presentation. Yeah. Elbow, left elbow, right elbow. Left knee, right knee. So what happens on the left happens on the right.
0: But what about the triggers then? You, you mentioned genes, so there's a genetic component. I just yeah. think, though, there's got to be some T reg loss
1: at the gut ah, level. Now you talking, Andrew. <laughs> There there, there are triggers. I've uh, I've been working on triggers for over 30 years. I've divided them into two types of triggers. There are what I call primary triggers. Primary triggers are more the initiating triggers. That's what status arises first time. And then there are secondary triggers. They are more exacerbating triggers or fueling triggers, so they keep the condition going. When we talk about primary triggers, there are four major major ones there that we deal with. Uh, the first one is cognitive phenomenon or injury or trauma to the skin. So if you have an accident, for example, or you have uh, an operation where you damage the skin, where you create a portal for infection or potential release of uh, uh, superantigen reactions from bacterial infections on the skin, then that can initiate a flare-up. Then you have uh, drugs, chemicals, um, some medications that we take, for example, uh, mood-stabilizing drugs like lithium can initiate a flare-up, first-time flare-up. So drugs can drive it a lot. Like That's why a lot of patients, when they go on medications, I always tell them, please get your doctor to talk to me first. Yeah. Because some of the drugs, especially blood pressure medications, can start a flare-up. Be the blockers are well-known for that. Infections. Uh, Staphylococcal, streptococcal infections, bacterial infections. Uh, what happens there is the bacteria releases toxins in the system. These type of toxins have a special name. We call them superantigens. Uh, normally, they, they activate T-cell, uh, phenomenal release of T-cells, up to 20% of T-cells in the body are activated. Hence, you get this massive flare-up uh, with gap that I was explaining before. Yeah. You have stress. Well, when we talk about stress, there are two types of stress that that are important here. Acute stress initiate the first time flare. Chronic stress flares it up like exactly the condition. So that's very important in differentiating what type of stress we are dealing with and how we manage that stress because that would start the condition or it would cause this chronic type of psoriasis to continue.
0: So humans aren't very good at looking at multiple causative factors. You know, like uh, these mm-hmm. very poorly identified Clostridia group of things called segmented filamentous bacteria, SFMs. Mm-hmm. They seem to inhabit the infant gut, and then they mm-hmm. seem to prime the immune system. But as long as there's a good copious amount of probiotics and, and good bacteria there, that sort of puts the brake on and says, that's enough, thanks, you can stop now. When we don't have that, good milieu of protective bugs there may be this priming for autoimmune disease any research, they've looked at rheumatoid arthritis for instance, but is there any research that you know of with these SFMs? Well, we,
1: we have, we've looked at probiotics, we've looked at the gut microbiome and all that uh, there is a benefit to probiotic, Andrew I'm not saying there isn't, but we've done a lot of work on that back in the early 90s because I had a focus on that And we did trials where we did probiotic uh, supplementation for a number of patients. When I'm talking about a number, it was over 140 patients. And I tell you, just with probiotic supplementation alone, there was minimal improvement, less than 1% better than when, when you're looking at all the markers. So, although probiotics are important, um, we must establish first what kind of probiotic we're talk- talking about. You know, there's some of the probiotics are T1-driven, uh, some probiotics are T2-driven. So, if you have a concoction of both, uh, where, you know, a topic ex-manceritis, one is T1, one is T2, and you, you mix them up, you get minimal effect, and uh, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence. I mean, I speak to a lot of people about probiotics, and they say, after I take probiotics, I get some improvement. And I say, what else are you taking? Then they give me this long list of five or ten different things that they taking. Yeah. So yeah. it's very difficult to say, well, the benefits are coming from the probiotics. And that's when we actually had our own probiotics in the early 90s. And because I didn't see the huge benefits, I didn't feel I wanted to continue down that line. But having said that now, we now have a lot of new thinking. There are a lot of new strains that we are looking at now. And the skin has its own bacteria on it that are protecting it in, in a way like you would know. Uh, So it's this breaking in the barrier function that creates a lot of a problem all the time. That's why I was mentioning before the cognitive reaction where you damage the skin. Now all of a sudden you've created this portal where the microbes living on the skin can release toxins and then you've got this uh, superantigen reaction going on. And this is very, very important. And um, there is also an issue that I see coming forth now where a lot of the bacteria are becoming resistant to a lot of these topicals that you go in every hospital. You've got to wash your hands every time. You've got to rub it everywhere. Yeah. So, so that's long-term. I think it's going to damage the barrier function of the skin and create, can create more problems. Mm. I think the skin and the body has its own mechanism of defense. We've got to allow it to, to play a role in itself. I'm not saying we don't use topicals, we don't use medications to, to try and stop that. But certainly, we have an ability, an innate ability to defend ourselves. And uh, in a lot of cases, we are not giving ourselves that chance. And uh, I read an article when I was in Vietnam, actually, that was translated into English, saying a lot of these Vietnamese children, they were allowed to play in the dirt, you know, all the time. But now, and they were very healthy children. But now they, they've got this, they've got a clean, they're becoming sick. I don't know whether that's a direct relationship or not, but that's what's
0: going on. Yeah, I think the Dettol generation hand wash has got a lot to answer for. <laughs> but, but I do wonder if, you know, perhaps with, I wasn't thinking about uh, about probiotics so much, I was thinking about repeated antibiotics, given that if somebody has, let's say, a genetic predisposition, perhaps a certain number of SNPs, um, and then they get hit with not one, but a multiple uh, successive amounts of antibiotics. I wonder if that priming is lost yeah, that, in the gut. That, that,
1: no doubt. That plays a big ruling. If you are an excessive amount of antibiotics, like we see in the Patients with acne. Uh-huh. After a while, their condition becomes worse, not yeah, right. better, worse. Yeah, because you're de- destroying the the gut flora to a certain degree. The balance is destroyed, and even if you incubate and you start with you providing the gut flora individually, everybody's got its own gut flora. Now you could change it, but if you change it for a little while and then you pull back and you don't uh, provide those probiotics, it returns back to what it used to be because yeah. that's your, you are born to be like that. You are an individual. Everybody's different. So we're trying to normalize and make everybody the same. And, uh, and it's like saying everybody's going to be treated with steroid for, for psoriasis. Well, steroid may help 5%, but 95 percent is not going to get any help because yeah. they are different. I hear it a lot of the time, patients will come and say, ah, I, my friend used X, and he got great results. But I've used it, and I didn't get any result. Can you tell me why? Well, because you're different. That's why. Yeah.
0: I wonder if the, the future will include um, the use of fecal microbial transplants for s- things like psoriasis.
1: Well, there, there are talks about that, and uh, there are investigations. I know in Russia, they've looked at that. Uh, there's parts of India that have also looked at that. Uh, it could provide some benefit, yes, of course. Uh, but there's a bigger thing that we are faced with now because uh, a lot of the, the bacteria, the microbes, are becoming resistant to even the strongest antibiotics we have now, Andrew. Right. A lot of the treatments that uh, I look at, topical, uh, cutaneous inflammation or or infection with uh, uh, staphylococcal infections, now on the skin, and... Uh, vancomycin is not treating
0: it. I'm aware of VRE, vancomycin-resistant enteritis, but you're talking about skin infections now.
1: Yes. So a lot of the skin infections back 20 years ago, which responded to a lot of these uh, strong antibiotics, are not responding now. So now you have this issue that you have an infection on the skin. I've just come to a hospital in Hungary where... Uh, there was a severe, severe bacterial infection, started on the foot. Now, they could not resolve it, and it started eating up. From the foot, it started eating into the leg. So they amputated the foot. So it went wow. to the knee. Now, the knee was, it's basically something is eating their, their leg. And it's uh, apoptotic, so it's no good. So they had to uh, amputate at the knee. Next thing, it went into was uh, the uh, the pelvic area so it's not one it was a, a world full of these people there were at least 27 of them there now what is the future for these people you know like you've got these bacteria who are becoming resistant and it's not the bacteria that cause the problem it's the toxins that the bacteria release so it's an indirect relationship there so we're looking at alright we can't kill the bacteria now we must look at how we're going to Uh, complex or deactivate the toxins that are causing all these massive T cell response, that potentially, that's how toxic shock happens. You you can kill the patient, but this massive release of toxins, and that's where the problem is. And these toxins can can, uh, stay in your system for, for years. We, we, we've, we've looked at patients who have had a very severe conditions and they tell you they had the condition five, six years ago, and yet the toxins are still floating around. So the toxins are not being mocked up by the immune system for whatever reason we don't know. So we must... That's where my research is pushing me now, to look at all these superantigens and how we can target them and deactivate them and complex them and whatever we can do with them. And there, there are very strong... Um, the uh, results that we are getting at the moment, but they are obviously starting results. We, we've got to look further into how they're working.
0: Right. So you've mentioned superantigens a few times. So these are these long-term toxic byproducts that are floating around and not cleared.
1: Yeah. So what happens is that when you have a bacterial infection, the body, uh, the, the bacteria releases different types of toxins. Uh, staphylococcal, for example, infections, the main toxins will be staphylococcal enterotoxin B. Uh, And that plays a huge role in atopic dermatitis. It's actually what drives atopic dermatitis. Now, if you have an infection, the the doctor gives you some antibiotics, but the antibiotics are not clearing up um, atopic dermatitis. They may improve uh, the staphylococcal infection, but most of the time they don't get rid of it fully. But... Further on, the bacteria has already released the toxins into your system and that's what causes the psoriasis or the to flare up. Now because they cause massive T cell activation. So what do we do now? We've got these toxins that we are floating around in the system. The body, for whatever reason, managed to get rid of some of it, but not all of it. And as long as you got that's why it becomes chronic. Yeah. Because the toxins are still there. You can't get rid of them. So that's where the direction I'm going. I'm going, how am I going to get rid of these toxins? And I'm looking at a lot of uh, bioherbal active ingredients to try and mop them up because uh, with uh, conventional medicine, normally you've got a single molecule. You've got steroids or you've got cyclosporine or you've got methotrexate. So they're single molecule and, and their pathway of activation and binding and and the mechanism of action, is very, it's one-directional. Mm. But when you've got a lot of toxins with different surface markers binding, how can you use one molecule to, to deactivate all these different toxins? It's not possible. Right. So that's why I'm looking at complex molecules that we can put together, different ingredients that could potentially target different areas, different binding sites, and hopefully deactivate those molecules. And uh, we're doing a lot of work on that. We're looking at uh, X-rays, crystallography, to look potentially how these molecules bind. Uh, Interestingly, they have two binding sites. They've got what we call a low-binding site and then a high-binding site. And you must bind both for you to deactivate it. So just uh, taking a bit uh, probiotic or whatever we're taking. I'm not putting probiotics down by any way, shape, or form because I use them myself. But it, it's too simple. We, it's very, very complex. And that's what we're looking at at the moment. We're moving into, in, into a time, actually, that takes us back in history. We're looking at back into natural medicine because it's very complex molecules going out there. And if you look at one, uh, for example, rosemary nuts, it contains a lot of ingredients, like you would know. So we're identifying the structures in these products, what structures they have in a crystallographically, graphically, how we can use these structures to bind these superantigen molecules. And it's a very complex situation, but if we can, then from there we would want to go and do vaccines from it. But, but at, at that point, it would be very, very exciting. And that's what I'm, my work is doing at the moment. That's what I'm working on.
0: Have superantigens been... You know, well classified and and identified in say you know biopsies of plaques or or you know numular.
1: Um I can talk to you all there, about This because I've done it. <laughs> if, if you take uh, involved skin and uninvolved skin yeah. and you do biopsies, you will find that in involved skin there are at least three hundred and seventy-five times more superantigens than in uninvolved. Skin. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very well. Uh, tested and shown. Yeah. And there are different ones, obviously, different types of superantigens. In psoriasis, the main one is uh, streptococcal pyogenes, exotoxin C. And in atopic dermatitis is streptococcal uh, enterotoxin So, And there are many of them. I could list you a 100 of them. But they play minor roles compared to major roles. Their structures are totally different. Their binding sites are totally different. So that's why I'm saying uh, we've got to look for complex, uh, different types of ingredients to mix together that would hopefully bind and deactivate those molecules.
0: And are we talk about talking about a circulating serum load because of priming or, like, or how are they being furthered? Is it, are we talking about chronic infection feeding it?
1: They are in blood serum also, but they tend to be localised in lesions. right. They're circulating initially, but they, they go to a point where they, uh, uh, like, target or, or directional to, to where the lesions are. So there's something going on with the initiation of psoriasis and these uh, molecules. And then once it's like migrating factors, so they migrate into this. They, they call skin homing. They skin home. They go to the, uh, to, to the skin uh, and eventually end up in keratinocytes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering about you know when you get the um, the waxing and waning of the presentation of psoriasis, if they're drawn to, if you like, um, or concentrated in the lesions, do you see a corresponding waxing and waning in the serum levels? And if so, what's feeding them?
1: Yes, there, there is a waxing pattern also in serum and uh, lesional uh, uh, superintegins, but the uh, the waxing and waning pattern when psoriasis gets better is more directed towards triggers. right. So if your triggers are getting better, then your skin will get better. And if your skin is getting better, then there is less superantigens in the lesions,
0: like that. So then we go back to the nutritional and um, dietary aspects that you've employed over 20-odd years, 30-odd years. Tell us a little bit about that. How does diet and nutrition affect psoriasis
1: quantitatively? Well, when you we know very well that uh, a diet that's very good, strong, anti-inflammatories, um, is very good antioxidant, um, has huge benefits on psoriasis. In one of the uh, papers that I wrote a couple of years ago, we looked at uh, um, strong antioxidant powers of some of the essential oil molecules that we use. And interestingly, everybody around the world would be surprised that these little molecules that are put together and we tested has seven times more antioxidant power than the strongest even trollop which is a very strong antioxidant on the market more than seven times now it's not the amount that you are using it's how much it's how it's combined together that we find because we're not using uh, grams of the material, we're using milligrams of the material, and yet, for whatever reason, it has a huge impact on rough species, and it has huge impact on fibroblasts or psoriasis. and it, we, we did all that, we've we got uh, studies on that, we've got uh, um, uh, uh, staining of, of all the lesions, uh, the biopsies that were done, and it's very, very clear. So, nutritionally, now, we can say with diet, uh, we, we try as much as possible to follow the Mediterranean diet. We believe that has huge benefits for psoriasis sufferers, except for some areas of, uh, of that where they use a lot of tomatoes. Well, tomatoes are very well known to exacerbate psoriasis. So with psoriasis, we've got to look at the diet, which is very low in histamine, because histamine plays a big, a big force in it. You don't have to be eating materials that contain histamine because histamine was called pruritus. And the minute you start scratching the skin, if you didn't have psoriasis there because of the combinal reaction, like I mentioned before, if you scratch an area and damage an area where you didn't have psoriasis, well, very soon you will because the combinal phenomena is a primary trigger. So obviously we're looking at diet or nutrition which keeps away from uh, a lot of uh, histamine. We look at uh, a diet which is, contains very few diuretics because the, 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 the skin lesions are already very hot, very dry, very flaky. You don't want to be drinking a lot of alcohol because it's a diuretic. It's going to make it worse. I've been talking about alcohol and coffee and sugar for, for at least 30 years. And yeah. back in the 80s, they all thought I was nuts. But now, finally, about three years ago, they admitted, even the medical professional, they've admitted that, yes, alcohol and coffee can definitely play a role in psoriasis. Yeah. So you want to keep away from all these high levels of sugar or, or takeaways of or these type of fast foods because it's not, not the best. I advocate very, because I found that back in the 80s, uh, high concentration or high levels of green vegetables in your diet. This is absolutely crucial, so crucial that I spent two years at Monash trying to find out how it worked and why, Uh, because we had a trial where we had 37 patients who were vegetarian, and those 37 patients, 26 of them cleared up roughly in about three months, compared to the others, which took a lot longer. So there was a definite benefit with these vegetarians. So I followed up and I thought, well, what is it? Is it different chlorophylls? Is it different phytonutrients in there? After spending two years, I just decided, look, I'll just tell the patients to eat plenty of green vegetables rather than try and find out what it was. Right. <laughs> it, it, it was impossible. We, I just couldn't find out. But I can tell you right now, my patients, uh, they consume at least at least 30, 30% of their diet are green leafy vegetables. That's very very
0: important. It's really interesting. Like you, you mentioned tomatoes earlier, with the um, one of the nightshade group of plants, and that was popularised by Parvo Erola. Tomatoes, eggplant, chili, capsicum.
1: Most of these, uh, they know, not very. Uh, you you would want to be having those if you've got sarcoid. Yeah. But not only for other reasons,
0: but because their histamine levels are very high. Right. Okay, gotcha. And the other thing was you just spoke about green vegetables. And this smacks of what um, Clint Patterson has been using with his rheumatoid arthritis and he's developed a program. Seems very, very similar. Do you find that some fats, even healthy fats, can be inflammatory?
1: Well, some of facts can be inflammatory. Uh, we talk about, you know, like, uh, I, I would go I would as much as saying, you know, like the only, uh, you know, the fatty acids, some of the, the better ones are all right, but the fish oils, and, uh, I would say they, they are okay. But again, I, I'm sitting on the fence with all of, a lot of these because I did a trial back in 1993 where I really believed in fish in those days. And found out that uh, we just did fish oil for psoriasis and eczema, and the benefit was minimal. Mm. It was so disappointing. This is really we, we interesting. We actually made our own fish oil, and then uh, we decided, well, how can I now give those fish oil to my patients when I just found the results to be basically infective? So we discontinued our line. But about uh, seven years ago, a friend of mine in Italy, We looked at this again. To make fish oil effective, it can be effective, Andrew. You need to take 9,000 milligrams three times a day. Otherwise, you'll be having benefits.
0: Yeah, the anti-inflammatory actions, you need really high doses.
1: You need high doses. How many people are going to take 27,000 milligrams of fish oil? The other thing that's very, very useful is vitamin D. So I'll just talk talk to you about that because... That's really, really important. Uh, uh, that's why sunlight is so effective. So I would encourage patients, especially during winter months, to increase their dosage of vitamin D because that's very, very helpful. Uh, most of the vitamin Ds that you have in the shop, they tell you to take one capsule. Well, you're not going to get vitamin D poisoning unless you're taking high levels of vitamin D. Uh, but during winter months, I would increase it maybe to two, three capsules per day. Um, it has enormous benefit.
0: What about the different forms of vitamin D? There's the vitamin D3, and then there's the the drug form. Which one do you prefer?
1: Yeah. Uh, if you could just recommend to the patients to get a bit of sunlight, you know, because uh, that's the best form. You know, the improvement in uh, sunlight and a bit of uh, salt water is amazing. Now, salt water, is sea water, not salt, put in a bath. Uh, Absolutely different, um, but certainly sunlight. As the best. That's why phototherapy is still being used after you know hundreds or even thousands of years. Yeah. It's primarily the best treatment. It's just um, not possible to go in take all your clothes off and you can, but the police might catch you, uh, run around on the beach and get a bit of salt water because that's the, the best treatment for the therapy is still the best treatment.
0: And you mentioned some herbs before, or you mentioned the use of herbs. What herbs are most beneficial in psoriasis? Do you find various combinations more successful? And indeed, you mentioned dosing. Do you find that you know going lightly, treading lightly is be, as a, uh, has a better effect than going in uh, rather heroically?
1: Yeah, definitely, because sometimes the patient may respond negatively to your hair, so it's not good going heavy handed. Um, like, uh, like, Calendula is, is very effective. We use, uh, uh Sorelia is very effective. Um, there are palm oil is very effective. Uh, Decalin is useful. Uh, all these herbs are very, uh, I, 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 back in, back in the uh, late 80s, I, I was just mixing all these herbs together. And sometimes, uh, I would get good results, sometimes I wouldn't. I I didn't really know why, uh until I started classifying the different types of psoriasis. So different psoriasis you would give different variations of the herd. So that's one thing it taught me. But then I always thought like uh the conventional medicine is uh, more is better. So if you take five milligrams
0: getting
1: <laughs> some results. If you take twenty milligrams you would get a better yeah, result. No nah. <laughs> It doesn't work, you see. It's almost the neg- the reverse of it. It almost works on the principles of homeopathy, I suppose, uh, because keep in mind that a lot of these cytokines and chemokines in the system are at the levels of nanoparticles, 10 to the negative 9, 10 to the negative 12. A lot of the uh, chemokines and cytokines, concentrations in the body, the interleukins and all them, it's 10 to the negative 10. It's very low amount, so... If you've got a low amount of molecule floating around and you're trying to hit it with a sledgehammer or five milligram or something, it doesn't bind. Somehow it just doesn't respond. So uh, small amounts, and it's good to only test one thing at a time uh, because you won't know the benefit otherwise. Like if, uh, if I give a patient some medications, now that I've got more experience, I know which one maybe I could mix together or different ones. But in the initial stages, being a researcher, you want to test one thing and see if that one thing works or gives you some benefit. And then you would test another, and then you would test another. And then you would look at, all oh, right, what happens if I combine two together? You don't want to combine 10 in one group. How would you know which one works?
0: Mm-hmm. The, the, I, I wonder, though, if the future of herbal medicine will will include you know, lower dose. And, and medicine always looks for a dramatic, significant, response, well, and maybe that's not the way we need to go. I'm wondering if the future of herbal medicine will include more elegant responses and that the combinations um, will show, you know, one herb might um, have an effect on, let's say, CD4, another effect might have a uh, an effect on CD8 or, you know, various yeah. interleukins. And I wonder if that concert naturopaths think of as the beauty of herbal medicine in its entirety, mm. not giving a sledgehammer, as you mentioned, and so I wonder mm. if that might be borne out by this sort of more elegant repertoire rather than a significant punch.
1: Well, well, well I think that direction is definitely what you just said. You know, we—I believe that, especially with the type of work I'm doing on superantigens, I know the molecule that would target that particular superantigen, for example. But if I was to go now and say this is the molecule I want to Turn into a medication, it becomes a drug because it's a single molecule. Now, for it to become a drug, I've got to put on the table at least five hundred million dollars. Yeah. Now, if I have five hundred million dollars, I would a gold coast lying on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, so you understand where I'm coming from. Absolutely. So what I prefer to do is we will keep it as uh, herbal medicine and uh, we, I will tweak the formula as much as possible to deliver the uh, concentration of the ingredients that I'm looking for. That's how I see the future of uh, herbal medicine, actually, if it's done systematically and scientifically, it's very, very powerful. We must do it like that. We cannot just say, like oh, right, Tom, come in. Uh, I gave John a very good formula that worked well for his psoriasis, now I'm going to give the same one to Tom.
0: Yeah,
1: it doesn't work like that. You've got to evaluate what's behind Tom's psoriasis. What what type of psoriasis? What is the presentation? What is the potentially um, if uh, the presentation is parakeratotic, uh, Then you try and evaluate well. Superantigens I know for sure would be playing a role in it. So the concentrations of superantigens. Unless you start doing a, a modeling where you can. Uh, Do tests to to work out antigens. in the future. I can depend. It would be costly, but you still could uh, because there are big laboratories now that are opening up to uh, for researchers to do a lot of these tests. So sometimes, once researchers get into it, then down the line, I think patients would follow. Uh, But it's a very very interesting area because you talked about rheumatoid arthritis before. Well, superantigens are involved in rheumatoid arthritis. We talk, about, we talk about congestive heart disease. They are involved. They are involved in skin cancers. They are involved in so many things. So, uh, primarily, if you look at uh, what is the biggest cause of disease around, I'll put my hand up straight away and I'll tell you: super agents.
0: Wow. So we we mentioned right at the beginning. You you spoke about you know the the initial need for. Um, relief of symptoms versus the long-term dampening of the triggers for long-term yeah. results. But obviously, at some stage, you've got to, you've got to offer them some some succour, some relief from their symptoms. So what about yeah. treating topically versus internally? And, you know, I'm wondering yeah. about uh, if you employ things like honey when you might suspect that there's an infection in the skin. Yeah.
1: You, you must take a dual approach, you see, because uh, if you're going to treat them with herbal medicine orally, it takes a while to get a response. It can take uh, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. So if the patients initially don't see that improvement, they lose faith because, remember, they tried everything before they come and see you. So now you're giving them some medications, some probiotics from whatever else uh, the practitioner needs have. And uh, if that patient is not getting a response after three or four weeks, they don't believe in the treatment again. And that belief is very, very important. So we have this dual-action approach. We we treat the skin. We know very well with our topicals, and our topicals are better than anything on the market. I'll put money on that, too. Topically, we, we can get a response with psoriasis in seven days. They can see a benefit in seven days. Wow. So once they see that benefit in seven days, then they become positive about the treatment. Then long-term, then we can target those triggers. I mean, it's very difficult to tell a patient, uh, look, go and make these dietary modifications. And basically, if they're on a pretty bad diet, you have to change their diet, change their lives upside down. So now you've, they've, they've tried different uh, treatments in the past with minimal response. they come to see you. Now you're turning their life upside down by telling them to make so many changes lose weight, do this, do that, and after four weeks, they don't see anything, because you're not going to get a result in four weeks if you just do that. Yeah. So we need to give them something that gives them that quick result, and then work on them and give them the trust, build the trust in natural medicine. That's how you got to do it, and that's where we're very positive about what we do, obviously, because the, the business has been so successful. We've got internationally we've got treatments in europe we've got professors of dermatology using my treatments we got clinics in vietnam we got clinics in singapore we've got clinics in czech republic we've got america who's knocking on the door wanting us i just come back from malaysia where the malaysian government is involved so they all see the future of dermatology as integrated dermatology yeah this is the future
0: yeah I think your ATMS webinar in June is going to be fantastic and deliver some real clinical pearls. All the info on how to attend is on the ATMS website. And I've gotta say, Michael, thank you so much for taking us through what is more than a complex disorder and requires, you know, a, a real understanding of the variations so that you can offer. Um, a concerted approach a sort of directed approach to relieve symptoms in your patients so I just thank you so much for joining us
1: Well, well this is my work and basically what we, we just touched on it, Andrew, you know like this work has been ongoing for, for years, yeah. five years so I'm more than happy we, we're looking at maybe doing courses for, for practitioners to get everybody involved my my knowledge is not just for me my knowledge is to be shared like a, a, in the past we used to have um franchise in australia we have 37 practitioners at one stage working with us but for whatever reason people get a bit older they retire etc and my focus now is turning to europe because uh being a professor of dermatology in europe i've got to attend so many conferences so i spend a lot of time internationally but but it's my domain i love teaching i love talking like you can see (laughs) Uh, i've got a passion about what i do i like to share the knowledge
0: but it's also a passion for your patients. I really thank you for sharing that.
1: Absolutely. Our patients are number one. you know without a patient we don't have a job. so I still tell my staff that all the time. So our patient is number one and this is what I work for. I work with health.
0: Brilliant words. This is FX medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook.
1: Thank you very much.
0: If you're a healthcare practitioner and want to learn more about how to develop more targeted treatments for your patients using genetic testing, then BioCeutical's DNA testing in practice is for you. This 10-module professional development course presented by Dr. Denise Furness is designed to help you unlock your patient's health potential. You'll learn how to move away from the trial and error approach that so typically leads to patient dissatisfaction to a targeted clinical model defined by decision-making that distinguishes those patients most likely to benefit from a given treatment from those who will not. For more information on the DNA testing in practice 10 module program, visit the BioCeuticals website or contact
1: your BioCeuticals sales representative.